Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Nils G. Walter. He's a professor of uh, chemistry and uh, biological chemistry as well. Uh, We spoke once a while ago about uh, various types of RNAs that are in our cells. It was a really interesting interview. Um, I'm having him back to be one of the co-authors of the book on viruses I'm doing. Because again, I think his perspective and the stuff he studies about RNA is very rare uh, compared to a lot of the people I've spoken to. So I want his, um, his input. So Nils, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, Richard. First, I want to get your bio again. So tell me about your, uh, your career a bit and then your current research. Right. So I was trained in Germany as a chemist with emphasis on biochemistry. I got my undergrad degree, my master's degree, or at the time it was called diploma, and my PhD all in Germany. My PhD, I worked at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry, which at the time had a Nobel laureate as the director or as one of the directors. And I worked with him directly, Manfred Eigen. He actually passed away just last year. And he actually worked on in vitro evolution. So in vitro evolution is the idea that you can have a Davinian selection, a process that would um, mimic how life works with replication, mutation, and selection from the diverse sequences you get through the mutation out of that replication. And through this Darwinian evolution and cycles of it, you eventually can evolve a new function. And so that attracted me to his lab. That's why I joined his lab. I actually was uh, the biochemist responsible for building an in vitro evolution machine that then later apparently went to the Technical Museum in Munich as a museum piece. Um, and But what I learned from it is understanding that molecules, just as viruses, can actually evolve over time. And there is a connection, as you can tell, between in vitro evolution and what we now see has emerged as a virus, coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2. And that, of course, is fascinating to see that connection. Now, after my PhD there on in vitro evolution, I moved to the U.S. as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Vermont, so a less traveled path. And I learned about RNA enzymes or ribozymes for short. They are connected to in vitro evolution because they could have been the starting point for how life formed on Earth because RNA is the unique molecule across uh, biology that has a feature of carrying genetic information like it is in the genome of the coronavirus of the COVID-19 agent, but also can act as an enzyme like proteins are thought to do. And so it kind of bridges DNA and protein in a way. And as such, it solves the chicken and egg problem, basically allows thoughts about how life on earth could have started because there could have been an RNA world where only these RNA enzymes, these ribozymes existed that uh, made themselves ultimately and replicated and mutated and evolved over time. And 
uh, it's these ribosomes that I studied as a postdoc. And that's how I started my own lab then in 1999 at the University of Michigan, where I'm still today. I'm in chemistry, but um, as you, Richard, said, I have multiple appointments in biophysics, biological chemistry, and across campus. I founded a Center for RNA Biomedicine, which is studying RNA with the hope to derive medicines from it, either something like an RNA-based vaccine, as we are seeing in clinical trials against COVID-19 nowadays, or to use RNA as a potential drug target to cure diseases, and there are examples for that as well, uh, very famous SMA or spinal muscular atrophy can now be fixed with basically RNA, a modified RNA molecule, if you wish, that fixes uh, what we call a splicing defect and uh, helps the toddlers that have SMA survive into um, teenage years so far. And so there are clearly abilities to utilize our knowledge on RNA to cure diseases. And the Center for RNA Biomedicine that I co-direct, that I found and co-direct is has this goal to bring people together, researchers from different areas, different disciplines together to utilize the power of RNA for medicine down the road. And so that's okay. what I do today. Got it. Okay. As, as for the questions now that we're going to get to, um, is there any form of life that you know of that doesn't have a, a virus that, you know, preys upon it or interacts with it? Very unlikely. And the reason is uh, there is, of course, a co-evolution, if you wish, between a cellular life form. So kingdoms are archaea, bacteria, and eukaryotic cells, so cells like in our body with the nucleus and a cytoplasm. In bacteria and archaea, you have the two combined. You have only one compartment, one membrane around the entire cell. And viruses have evolved. I mean, the viruses that we see today are relatively modern in origin, and have evolved together with these cells. So as soon as there was the first cell, probably there became, came to exist the first virus that would have infected that cell. Every so often, it will succeed in killing the cell. But if it does that, then of course its host is dead and the virus itself that needs the machinery of the cell to survive itself uh, as a parasite will also have vanished. So in the end, it's best for a virus to kill maybe some of the target cells, but not all of them. And in that way, over time, over eons, over billions of years, really, viruses and single cells and later multicellular organisms like the human body have co-evolved to coexist. And I think uh, there will not be, because of that uh, ancient origin of viruses, there will unlikely be any organism today that doesn't have a virus associated with it. And going back to the to origins, do you think that uh, viruses arrived on the scene before cells or uh, coincidentally or contemporaneously? What, what's your thought? Yeah, so that's an interesting question and, and somewhat philosophical and certainly also difficult to answer in a way. The way I think about this is that a virus itself, the difference between a virus and a cell is that the virus lacks key components of what we call metabolism, of being able to produce all the molecules that it needs to be a life form. And the virus becomes a parasite or is a parasite that only can exist and replicate in a cell that has these missing components, the components that are missing from the virus. And so for that reason, the very definition of a virus is that it has uh, many components that are important. It has a replicase enzyme that can 
copy its own genome, be it RNA or DNA. It has DNA or RNA. It has some sort of a coat protein. It has maybe membrane around it like a cell has, but it lacks other components that are necessary to make, for example, the building blocks to make the DNA or RNA genome, to make the protein that is then the replicase enzyme. And because this metabolism is lacking, the virus can only live inside a cell, outside a cell. The form that it takes there is, again, like we saw, we've seen with the COVID-19 agent, a SARS-CoV-2 virus, a, an RNA that wraps itself in a protein code, that wraps itself in a membrane and has little spikes on it and other proteins, but ultimately in itself cannot replicate without the help of a cell. So in a cell, in a way, as a parasite, it subjugates the metabolism of the cell to make more copies of itself. And now it comes down to whether you feel that the ability to actually replicate, so not just the inherent ability, but the actual factual um, possibility to make itself in uh, many more copies of itself is part of being alive or not, that then distinguishes whether you would say a virus is alive. I would say it's alive inside the cell and it basically is not alive outside the cell because it cannot replicate on its own. It needs the cell as a helper to do that. Yeah, I want to, that's good. So I guess contingently alive. I want to give you an example I thought about and see if you think it applies. You know about trees and let's say certain ones come from seeds. Okay. If most of my life I see seeds and I rarely see a tree, I'm going to think, oh, trees are not really alive. If, if they're in the right, maybe soil and sunlight and all that, then they're alive. But most of the time I see them, they're seeds and they're not alive in that point or they're dormant. And I think that possibly may be what's happening with viruses. People, I think, contemplate them in the virion stage mostly and don't in the you know intracellular stage. And therefore, I think that's why they say, oh, well, virions are non-motile and they're just passive and, and the virus can't exist unless it's inside a cell. And therefore, it's not alive or at best contingently alive inside a cell. But what's your thoughts on that example? Do you think that applies? Yeah, again, I think it's somewhere in between. One way to think about it is I mean, there are viruses that get incorporated into the genome of a cell. In fact, 8% of the human genome is retroviral in origin. That is, it comes from viral particles, virions, that at some point infected a eukaryotic cell, an ancestor cell, and get, got itself integrated in the form of DNA into the genome that we now carry with us. So these 8%, which is I mean, thousands of different viral infections were at some point experienced over the millions of generations that um, brought us about and um, accumulated over time in the genome. And there was more and more of this buildup of retroviral RNA. However, in order to be silenced and not just break out and destroy the cell, which would be unproductive for a virus as well as the cell, these viruses became silenced. There's a whole machinery inside the cell that silences these viruses. And at some point, they also mutated and nowadays are no longer fully functional viruses. But the genome is clearly highly related to something like HIV virus, something that can, has the ability to replicate inside the cell and then integrate itself into the genome. So that is well known. There is also evidence, or there's a lot of thought about the idea that viruses, when they infect and replicate in the cell, can actually take snippets of genetic information out of the cell with them and co-opt 
certain genes that might have evolved in the cell that it infected. And just by chance, basically, through, if you wish, a mutation, splices itself into the viral genome and then gets carried on. If it's not helpful for the virus, the virus will eventually just discard it, will lose it over subsequent cycles of infecting cells, replicating. But if it is useful, then it will carry that gene with it onward and will be able to now adopt it into its own genome for the long haul. So in other words, there is evidence that viruses can insert into our genome, but there's also evidence or high likelihood at least that pieces of genetic information from our cells also can move into viruses. In fact, there's a whole group of so-called transposons that are retroviral-like that are known to hop from one cell to another, from one organism to another. And of course, through that process, the virus enriches itself in its genetic makeup and can, for example, adopt a new protein that in the case of SARS-CoV-2 eventually evolved into a way that it could hook onto the ACE2 receptor on human cells that are found in a nasal passage in the, in the kidneys and elsewhere, intestines, and replicate so efficiently as we see today in this pandemic. So it, it's okay. really a co-evolution between the two. Yeah, I see you get a lot of reason why viruses appear to have, I'm going to call it agency and evaluation of ambiguous information and contingent action inside mm -hmm. of a cell. It's amazing. I mean, some of the things you're talking about I'd like to explore with you at some point, but yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. When you contemplate extracellular vesicles or plasmids from bacteria or things like that, do they seem viral-like to you? You know, they carry genetic material, they can enter into cells, they can affect gene expression, et cetera. Um, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so we actually work on a protein called ARC, which is found in, expressed in neurons in cells of the brain. And this ARC protein resembles certain code proteins of retroviruses, again, like the AIDS virus, HIV, or other similar viruses. And in the virus, it has to function, and it's the same what it does as an ARC protein in our cells, to form little vehicles, basically uh, more or less spher spherical entities that can bud from a cell and take some cargo with them. So in the virus, right, where you have this as a code protein, it helps the virus after it has replicated and made this protein in the cell to package its own genome, make a little sphere around it, the vir virion, and then uh, escape the cell, take some membrane with it as um, an envelope around the virion, and then pass to the next cell that it can infect. But it turns out that this art protein is highly homologous, very closely related to these retro, retroviral uh, packaging proteins, does something similar in our neurons, where it also can take genetic information from inside the cell, but out from the cell, and then transfer this genetic information to a neighboring cell. And it's thought that that may help uh, directionally transfer genetic information from one cell to the other in a way where they communicate in, in, a, in a material way, where transporting genetic information from one cell to the other, reprogramming the recipient cell. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so just like a virus does in a way, right? The, um, a cell that has a virus replicated in it and a virus butts from it, 
and then moves to a different star also effectively transfers genetic information that it has produced to the recipient cell and reprograms this recipient cell, if it's a virus, of course, to replicate the virus. But in the case of the ARC protein uh, interaction with its own messenger RNA and other RNAs, um, to transfer information uh, that could be helpful to the other neuron. Yeah, it's, it's viruses seem to be tools that are used by bacteria and cells. Viruses use bacteria, cells, and other things they infect as tools. I mentioned this before, I've, I've heard of uh, bacteria taking pieces of uh, viral DNA or RNA, using it for their immunity, using it to express spike proteins in their membrane to poke other bacteria. What do you think governs whether a virus is being used as a tool or a virus uses you know, a cell as a tool for itself? To me, biology is all interconnected, right? I mean, I'm a fan of movies like Avatar, where this is acted out uh, in a movie. The idea that ultimately we are all connected with one another. And I think we are modern biology, modern science actually teaches us so much more about how that actually works. Um, as you mentioned, the extracellular vesicles that are made and these arc protein vesicles among them to transfer in genetic information from one cell to another cell through the bloodstream, for example, or within the brain from one cell to the next. Uh, and so there's this communication going on in our body. However, there's also communication between the environment and us going on. This leads to the idea of epigenetics, right? The environment, like Lamarck had thought, can actually influence the genetic information and change the gene expression of individual cells, and they therefore change the phenotype of a cell or of a whole human body, more or less in subtle ways, but it can predict whether, I mean, what the livelihood is of a person or what the, I mean, how long they live, whether they are more likely to have cardiac problems, cardiovascular problems, or whether they get cancer, for example. So these things can actually change depending on the environmental exposure that one has over a lifetime. It's not just mutation, it's actually physical exchange with agents from the environment. It can be inorganic, but they can also be organic material viruses. So in a way, and this is best maybe documented for plants, plants can actually communicate with one another through these retroviruses, these transposons. There's some evidence, and although it's still controversial, that when a plant gets stressed, it basically activates all these transposons, these movable genetic elements that then escape the plant cell and try to go somewhere else and carry some of the genetic information with them so that that plant at least finds some way to deposit its own genetic information elsewhere, right? So that's an example that has been documented. Again, it's a little controversial stuff, but that's just one of many, many examples, I believe, where, I mean, there is actually information transfer between different organisms, and this can go between a bacterium and a human. Uh, it's now better and better understood that actually bacteria not only make metabolites for us, when we have these bacteria in our intestines that make all these vitamins for us that we can't make ourselves because we lost the genes that are responsible for making this vitamin. So the bacteria produce them for us and feed them to us. In return, we give them sugars to survive, right? So there's this uh, symbiosis between bacteria and us, but there's not just small compounds, metabolites, exchange, but there is also genetic information material exchange in the same way between our bacteria in the gut and us, uh, maybe the yeast cells that live on our skin, certainly between different um, organisms that uh, pass on each other. And in that sense, right, getting an infection 
of a SARS-CoV-2 virus is an exchange of genetic information. Now, the immediate consequence can be of that, of that can be um, getting sick and even dying potentially. But in evolutionary terms, if you look at the entire population actually, this exchange of genetic information can every so often have a positive impact by exchanging useful genetic information also every so often. And that is over a long period of time, the millions of years that, I mean, uh, organisms have been around, billions of years really can lead, can but assist no, so evolution. This is strange. So, you, you, you know, if I exchange information with someone, the information doesn't usually, I mean, sure, you know, it can inform them and therefore cause a change in them, but it doesn't actually change them. So when you talk about RNA and other things that, you know, and used in cell-to-cell communication, it, it's as if the genetic materi- material has agency in itself. Because if I'm communicating using genetic information from me, a bacteria, to you, a somatic cell, it's one thing if I communicate it and then you as the cell decide, okay, will I use this information and change what I'm doing or not? It's another when that genetic information actively takes over the recipient of the communication and changes it whether mm-hmm. it likes it or not. And that's mm-hmm. what viruses seem to be. They seem to be right. in part an aggressive form of communication that's not just mm-hmm. communication, but it, it, it has agency itself. What's your thought? Yeah, to me, I think it's a degree. It's a matter of degree, okay? I totally agree with you that viruses are particularly aggressive parasites that when infecting another cell, replicate and can kill the cell and potentially the host, the entire organism, right? But there are many, many more viruses around. Many of them are quite benign, right? There are actually viruses in our bodies that may not kill us at all, that infect cells and exchange between cells. Sometimes they integrate into a genome, again, over generations and ultimately become manifest there. The way a cell decides whether or not something is useful is, of course, I mean, most of the time it will degrade it. If it's a virus that replicates so aggressively that it overwhelms the defense, the self-defense of the cell, then that cell might die. That still may not kill the organism, the multicellular organism in our body. But, I mean, there's a risk that that could happen because virus gets replicated. When I think I'm talking about here is, is that just there's a lot of genetic information exchange across um, even organismal barriers between viruses and bacteria, between bacteria and humans, between viruses and humans. And much of that information is discarded. It basically becomes background noise and is not is ignored by the recipient cell. And in many cases, that's a good thing because maybe this is a fragment of a virus that wouldn't be good to take up because it could become the whole virus because it finds a second piece somewhere in the same cell. And now, I mean, if two pieces basically splice each other together, it actually can happen. So that would be bad, right? So in, in other words, it's good to get rid of most of this noise, this background genetic information material exchange, but not all of it. And the virus is so aggressive that it can overwhelm the defense and can uh, basically avoid being discarded and as a consequence can kill the cell. But again, my, my hypothesis here is, and I think there's decent evidence for it, that this exchange of information through vesicles and particles of different types um, is much more prevalent than we had really uh, realized before. And that 
viruses are only one manifestation on a grace on a, on a broad scale of of how active and proactive that material can be, how aggressive it can be, how much agency it has, or whether it's just being degraded where it quickly and disappears. Well, the fact that what could be termed information has agency is kind of strange. If you contemplate a cell, a unicellular organism, I can ask you at one point, where is the life in the cell? You know, if you slowly, systematically take apart a cell and take out components of it, at what point is it now dead? And then when you talk about RNA and other components, if they have any agency at all to them, I wonder if you could contemplate a, even a single cell as a, as a holobiont or as a constituency, like can a single cell essentially have its own microbiome, but its microbiome is the various RNAs that inhabit it and the extracellular vesicles that transit it. Yeah, so there, is, there have been efforts, of course, to make a minimal bacterial cells. I mean, there are some efforts, for example, called synthetic biology, where people want to find what is the minimum number of metabolic pathways that put together into a single cell what produced a living cell. In one way, nature answers this by making bacteria that have just 6,000 genes or so, which is small compared to human genes. There are 20,000 protein coding genes and other 80,000 RNA coding genes. So the genome of a human is about a thousandfold the size of bacterium. So bacterium is already a relatively minimal form. However, one interesting question about this is a bacterium, of course, has to survive in all sorts of conditions, right? Let's take an Escherichia coli bacterium that lives in our gut. So, well, it lives in our gut. It's being fed by sugars from the intestines. It happily replicates. It's very well fed. It makes some vitamins, gives them through the intestines to us, right? Everyone is happy. Well, now you have a bowel movement. The thing gets flushed out and all of a sudden it finds itself in a drainage system, okay? So that same bacterium, if it were dead on right away, that would be pretty bad. So what the bacterium has to have is a whole set of new genes that it doesn't need while it's in our intestines, but it will need once it's flushed away into a river and I mean goes down into the salty sea. And then at some point, somebody swallows it again and it's going back into the intestine, right? And so the same is true for parasites like viruses or uh, infective agents like the malaria agent, for example. They have life cycles. They have different conditions, oftentimes extremely different in terms of temperature, salinity, nutrient offerings, right, that they all have to survive. So the reason why a bacterium still needs the 6,000 genes is because it has to, I mean, it normally expresses only a third of them when it lives in our intestine, then it goes somewhere else. Now it needs to express another thousand to actually be able to survive in those conditions. And then another thousand different genes that are coming into play and yet another set of conditions. So ultimately, when we grow a bacterium like E. coli in our intestines or in a, on a Petri dish, we feed it well and it's only one set of genes that are even needed. And the others are down-regulated, not much expressed. But it needs the others in the context of the real life cycle that it might have over 
I mean, the entire time that this bacterium lives, of course, the bacterium lives forever in a way because it divides and the daughter cells live and then they divide and, and their daughter cells live. So it lives for a very long period of time. And over that time it is exposed to many different conditions under which it all has to survive. Otherwise it will go extinct. And so, of course, but many bacteria also die, but there has to be high enough of a probability that it has the genes needed to survive, that it can actually survive under a broad range of conditions so that as a species, it doesn't die out. So that then makes that question that you just posed quite difficult to answer because in the petri dish, which is as nutrient rich and as comfortable as our intestines are, maybe just 1500 genes are needed, okay? As a very minimal one. And you maybe could construct in synthetic biology a bacterium that lives on this very minimal number. And if you take out one more, then it dies. I think that at some point we will be able to construct such a bacterium, but with the caveat that it will only survive with this very minimal number of genes under these optimal growth conditions. And anywhere else at lower temperature, placing it in um, just water or so for a while, it will die. And that's the beauty. I mean, so that makes this question difficult to answer, right? So life is contingent on the environment and it has to survive in a range of conditions that it would find on earth and, or in its habitat and, um, or close to its habitat. And, and if it dies off too quickly because it doesn't have the right genes to survive, then too, maybe too many are dying off and the species goes extinct and it wouldn't be here anymore, right? So, so again, it's a little different than a human body, right? In the human body would say, okay, I take out the heart that's the end of it. I take out the brain, that's the end of it, right? There are certain organs that are absolutely, they, they can't be taken out. If you take up, uh, take off an arm, well, you can survive. If you take out intestines, you probably can survive for a week or so, or two weeks, whatever, uh, right? So it's a little more complicated if you think about the 6,000 genes that a bacterium has. If you took out the ribosomes entirely, then the bacterium would be dead so in a sense, that could be seen as a heart. And there are other things like the replisome, I mean, replicating DNA polymerase, if you took that out entirely. But then for the ribosomes, for example, there are actually replications of the same gene. So it's not a single gene, it's multiple genes that makes the same RNA that builds up the ribosome. Why? Because every so often, one of those genes will be lost. And if that was the heart of the bacterium, and it's the one gene that gets lost, the whole bacterium dies, that would be bad for the bacterium. So the bacterium basically maintains multiple copies of that same gene in order to make sure that if that happens to one of its disciples, um, that cell can still survive because it has redundancy. So again, it's long answer to a simple question, but it's a complicated question. Yeah, it just tells me that life is a continuum. You know, like you said, if you take out your heart, you may die within seconds. If you take out your brain, if you take out one kidney, you won't die at all. If you take out both, I mean, so I can't uh, express it yet. But again, the, the overriding feeling I'm getting is life is a continuum. Mm -hmm. So it makes it even harder to determine what is life. That's right. And ultimately, okay. I think what characterizes our century now, this century, is that after, I mean, we've been doing biochemistry or biology and at the molecular level for something like 100 years, a little over 100 years. That's not a very long time, and uh, certainly not in historic context and, and even less in geological context, right? So it's a pretty short period of time. For that, we've actually made a lot of progress. 
And I think we are now actually in the position finally to learn what all the components are in a human cell. There are cell atlas projects that basically catalog them all uh, from DNA to RNA to protein, all the different components. When are they made in the cell? When are they expressed in the cell at different times and at different conditions? And so we now have a pretty complete catalog in part, of course, because of the Human Genome Project. We know what all the sequences are, and we can derive from that what the RNA and what the protein would be. But what we don't fully understand yet is how all these things are interacting with one another. And currently, we are trying to understand all these pathways in the cell. We know much of the basic biochemical pathways that make metabolites, that make some of the vitamins, that make the building blocks of life, because that was studied in the 60s, 70s, um, 80s and so forth, and still today. What we only learned recently is that there's a whole set of RNA metabolic pathways that we are only starting to understand, most of the components we now know, but we don't know how they all interact with one another. So we are now in a position where we can actually understand what is called the interactome uh, or the kind of the entirety of all the interactions between all these cataloged components of a human cell. And maybe to our surprise, or maybe not to our surprise, they all interact with one another within the cell. Everything can bind to, I mean, a lot of other things, sometimes very briefly, sometimes for a longer period of time, binds to a long period of time. Now it might induce a new process, a new pathway, and something new happens. It might sequester, in a binding to a particular partner might sequester it away from a different process, and now something no longer happens, right? Sequestration can occur. So we are starting to kind of understand that. And we are in the process of kind of understanding this interactome. However, now on top of that, put the interactions that all these cells, the 60 trillion cells or so, maybe with all the bacteria, 100 trillion cells we have in our body, they also interact with one another and actually exchange metabolites, they exchange pieces of genetic information. Now this interactome across the 60 trillion cells is even bigger, even vaster than just what is happening inside a single cell. And now put factor into that, well, we are exchanging information, not just food that we eat, but with the food that we eat, we take up nucleic acids. Most of that gets degraded, but maybe some of it passes through. Certainly some things that we take up directly into our bloodstream or into saliva or so might get into our bodies in some way. Often, most of the time, 99.99%, it's degraded and it's totally harmless and built, used as new building blocks. But in other cases, it could be a virus and do something to us, right? Or it could be setting an epigenetic marks that changes an expression pattern, a subset of our cells, and that changes the likelihood that we get cardiovascular disease, right? If you can imagine uh, two things interacting with one another, right? You have one interaction. If you have three things that can interact with one another, now you have already three different combinations of pairwise interactions, right? And then now imagine 100 trillion cells in our body, the environment in which we are enclosed on top of that. And in each cell you have, I mean, millions of different molecules and they interact with each other in ways that we haven't fully understood. And that is ultimately what life is. And of course, now with the catalog in hand, we can start tracing what these interactions are, what this interactome is, both inside the cell, among cells in the body, and across even organisms across the world, if you wish. But that's a lot to study and will take some more time to learn. But this is a century where we are making a lot of progress on it. So um, 
going back to viruses now, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to say it's more of a macroscopic question. Not really. You know, some are, are parasites, like you say. Some are just like purely lytic. Some are lysogenic or latent. Some endogenize into a host genetic material. Um, and then within the latent or lysogenic arena, I mean, sometimes depending on the conditions of the host, they'll turn lytic again. Mm-hmm. So what do you think governs this behavior? And I'm going to call it behavior. Like what, you know, why would a virus uh, choose one method of action or another? Yeah, so there's always the question of how even do you describe this behavior, right? In one way, the way I would look at it is a virus doesn't choose, but the circumstances are such that a pathway is turned on. So that can be a way in which transposons are silenced or viruses and retrovirus sequences in that are integrated lysogenically, as you said, in the genome get activated is by removing so-called epigenetic marks. These marks were set by the cell to not have that virus replicate after it has incorporated into the human genome, right? So the marks are set, this whole thing is silenced, nothing happens, but stress of different kinds can change, and stress comes from outside cues, environmental impact, can change this, these epigenetic marks and maybe remove, happens to remove the epigenetic marks in this one cell across a certain part of the genome where it so happens that a pretty viable viral genome is embedded. That would be the oftentimes maybe random event that ultimately leads to that virus being reactivated, now starting to replicate. And that's ultimately actually what is the, the terrible thing about HIV. As a retrovirus, it inserts into the genome. You can, I mean, after the initial infection, right, the body gets rid of the viral particles, but some have now infected uh, a T cell particularly and inserted themselves into its genome. And the T cell is valuable to the body, so, and the virus totally completely hides, it's not visible to the body's immune response and survives, right? And, but every so often, while maybe a random event, it might be reactivated. In most cases, again, the immune response gets rid of it and it's in the end harmless. But over a 10 year period, it's more likely than not that the virus gets reactivated and in the meantime has killed enough T cells that the immune response of the body is weak enough for the virus to overcome that response and that defense. And eventually it it basically overwhelms the body. So I think that it is, and the same is true with cancer ultimately, right? It's activation of certain genes that may even have come from some transposon, some retroviral element, some of them. Uh, Maybe they're intrinsic to just the life of a cell. And normally if health in check, everything is fine and the cell behaves itself and only replicates when there's a hole in the tissue and that needs to be filled. But it can also be just by chance, by some environmental cue, maybe by some stress that removes the epigenetic marks on it, can now replicate a little bit more than usual. And that cell becomes rogue and replicates. And that cell, not a virus, but here the cell itself replicates so much that and maybe is lucky and doesn't get discarded by the immune response, survives and ultimately grows into a tumor and kills by be becoming a cancer, right? And so, so again, it, it's a mixture of random events in part triggered by environmental exposure to something that then lead to a change in a pathway. Something gets ramped up. 
And again, it's not a choice by that cell to go rogue. It's more, I mean, the cell doesn't think for itself, right? It's, uh, or by the virus. It's not a choice for the virus to do this. It's more that the molecular environment is such that things get changed sufficiently to change the balance of the system so that it goes in a new direction. And now in cancer, for example, uh, a certain gene gets overexpressed, that divides, that cuts the genome in a way that now more mutations are being installed and that these mutations then amplify the rogueness of the cell and it divides even faster. And because there's the Binion evolution going on on that cell and the more rep faster replicating cell has a, a higher likelihood of making progeny and surviving in the body for a while, right? It grows into a tumor and then eventually it learns to uh, evade that tuber and go to a new place and make metastases and that kills the person, right? And so again, it, it's kismet. It's kind of, I mean, bad luck if that happens, but it is something that is, is not far. I mean, there's no cell that says, okay, I want to go rogue. There's no virus. I want to say, okay, I want to wake up and kill this person because it doesn't help the virus to kill the person because then the host is gone and the virus dead is dead, right? So um, it's more, it, so it just happens, right? It's a molecular event that then leads to a new, it's a rebalancing or an unbalancing of, uh, of life as we know it. What about when uh, viruses first infect? There appears to be a latency period, you know, hours, days, months, weeks, years. Where does that come from? Do you think it's just the viral replication needs more exponential or needs more time to exponentiate and affect enough cells? Or is there, you know, a quorum sensing that could be going on once the virus infects some cells and communicates with other cells to see if they're infected and if there's enough of them to take action? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's all of the above, I would say. And uh, so uh, for short answer, for longer answer, right? So it takes a certain time for a virus to replicate. It's not by accident that viruses called phages that infect bacteria replicate particularly rapidly because they effectively want to outgrow, outpace the bacterium. The bacterium can basically divide in something like 20 minutes. It's in this period of 20 minutes that the phage typically can replicate enough progeny that it kills the cell before it even divides. So phages, these bacteriophages that affect bacteria are basically have a very short, they have a sigmoidal growth curve also with the latent phase, but that is basically just based on replication. It takes them a while to kick off their own replication. Eventually uh, they go into an exponential phase where one makes two, makes four, makes eight. So you get this geometric growth that we call uh, exponential amplification. And it basically shoots up higher and higher. You see that actually with COVID-19 infections too. That's why they're exponential because one person infects two, infect four, infect eight, right? So it goes geometric and it just um, goes up in exponential growth. So that can be a simple reason for a very rapidly replicating virus. Now, there can be other reasons. So if you look at HIV as kind of the opposite example for a virus, right? You have the same thing a couple days after an infection the virus titer goes actually up because the virus can replicate I mean, within 24 hours, probably something like this. Again, aligned with the fastest speed with which a cell, a human cell can divide is about 24 hours. So that's about the replication speed by which, I mean, the virus might have replicated enough 
to lyse the cell, kill the cell, and infect new ones. So you will see a few days after an HIV virus infection, also an exponential tighter increase, right? Increase of number of viral particles that ramps up over a, a week or two. Uh, and then eventually the um, immune response is strong enough to get rid of it. I mean, the uh, T cells get activated, the B cells get activated, and they could just get rid of it and it goes away. But then there's a different latency, which is of course, after the HIV has inserted itself in the genome and then um, it every so often a cell goes rogue, it makes more of the virus, but the virus has still is still facing a strong immune response and it gets killed. Another cell a week later activates Man, very small spike, but then it goes away, right? So, so over time, you get many such events, but then over time also, the virus does kill more and more T cells, and um, they are the guardians of the immune system, the backbone of the immune system, if you wish, and they go away. And at some point, you get secondary infections, pneumonia, and, and the patient dies. But that's 10 years later. So there's a latency phase 10 years later because the overall process of overwhelming the immune response takes that long, right? So, and then there's anything in between, right? Uh, latency phase of 10 minutes or latency phase of 10 years, uh, depending on what exactly goes on on the molecular level. Yeah, if, all right. So if I get infected by a virus, you know, let's say, I don't know, a monkey out in the jungle bites me and it transmits a virus to me and I'm number one, I label myself that way. And then I, you know, I come home and you're there and I cough on you and you get it and you're number two and then, you spread it, you know, by the time a given virus gets to like, you know, number 50, it's passage through, let's say 50 people. Mm -hmm. How do you think it will change? Do you think it'll become more pathogenic, more latent? Um, do you think the person will get as sick? What do you think will happen and why? Yeah, so that's also an interesting question because it goes to the evolution of viruses, right? And uh, again, they are parasites, though so they live in principle in symbiosis with their host. As I said earlier, without the host's metabolism, they could not be alive, they could not replicate, they could not spread. So, for example, the first SARS, what is now called SARS-CoV-1 infection, famously was actually that it originated also in China, spread to Taiwan and so forth, Asian countries, a little bit to Canada, but not many other countries. Why? Because it was actually more deadly than the current COVID-19 even though they are related viruses, coronaviruses, this first one was a little too deadly and it killed its people too fast and with too high a probability. And if that happens, as you can see from that example, right, it actually died out pretty quickly. I mean, it was a 2003 kind of uh, infectious wave, but it did never became kind of a global pandemic. So in principle, it's actually best for a virus. If it's, I mean, again, the virus doesn't think about this, right? But Strategically, for survival, it would be best for a virus that does something like COVID-19 actually does, which is being highly infectious, but not killing too many people. And even better, as COVID-19 is, uh, be asymptomatic in many um, super spreaders, in people that can spread it, but don't feel really sick. So that's actually the best. I mean, that's why SARS-CoV-2, the current COVID-19 agent, is actually so... Uh, terrible because it has the right mix of being aggressive in terms of infections, but not too aggressive in terms of killing people and or even making them sick. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting mix. Making them sick and making them sneeze, of course, leads to better distribution and more infections potentially. But if it's too rapid 
and too obvious, and it's not stealth, stealthy enough, then people, I mean, avoid the sick people and the virus dies out, right? So it's, it's really an interesting, I mean, middle ground that makes this current COVID-19 particularly important. Another strategy is HIVs, right? Which is being stealthy very much. I mean, people don't really get very sick for 10 years and, and until they die, right? And so very insidious because it is a long latency virus that is sure to kill unless you get medication nowadays, but it's basically 100%, I mean, very, very high kill rate, but it takes very, very long for that to occur by comparison to other infections. So ultimately, your question also is about mutation. So the virus needs these very specific, very special properties, right, in terms of how likely it is to infect and how fast it is to replicate, how easy can it recognize the next cell that it wants to infect and so forth. And that um, actually poses a lot of restrictions on how much it can mutate. So coronaviruses, for example, have, unlike HIV, a proofreading replicase that is an enzyme that actually corrects errors that it makes in its replication. HIV has what is called a reverse transcriptase that replicates it, and that has a tenfold or so higher error rate. Okay? And that works because the HIV virus is pretty short. I mean, it has a pretty short genome of under 10,000 RNA nucleotides compared to 30,000 for coronavirus. And because HIV has a shorter genome, it can make more errors without making too many errors to lose all the message, right? And, but overall, HIV actually mutates pretty rapidly and it uh, mutates actually in its spike protein GP120 and, and that actually allows it to kind of evade the immune response and um, still infect the same cells. Coronavirus by comparison makes fewer mistakes intentionally because it has a longer genome. It can't make too many mistakes in order to not wipe out wipe itself out with too many errors, you, you don't get a viable virus anymore. But it makes still some, and those are restricted in where they can occur. For example, I mean, there's a famous, uh, I think it's a G2C mutation or so that occurred in Europe. And then when the coronavirus come from Europe, Europe to New York City, right, and the East Coast, it could be kind of found there as a mutation. But as far as I understand, I remember correctly, it's actually um, neutral in terms of the protein sequence. It's just a mutation that uh, affects the genome and may change a little bit replication speed and things like this, but doesn't really fundamentally change the virus itself and became a very nice tracer with which people could trace um, where the virus that now is, is spreading across the U.S., mostly came from and, and so forth. So it's a great tool for us to actually trace infections. But um, it's a relatively, uh, there are relatively few mutations that have occurred on coronavirus particularly because in order to be such ins insidious and successful virus, there are many, many constraints on the spike protein with which it has to recognize the ACE2 receptor on the replication machine or all these genes that it has that are essential for its replication. It can't change them too much without losing its efficiency and its stealth uh, and all these properties that it needs. So again, yes, there are some mutations that will occur. And yes, there's evidence that this has happened. I mean, the virus spread from China to Europe to the US and, and we can follow some of that. And yes, there's evidence that it might even be a little bit more insidious still after it mutated in Europe to come to the US than it was originally. But again, it's pretty 
limited in it, the scope of mutations that it can tolerate without losing its skills, so to say. Yeah, just a couple more questions. Um, if I think of a, you know, a beehive, you have worker bees and drones and the queen and all that stuff, and they're all bees. They all have different phenotype, but they also have a combined phenotype that is bee, you know, mm -hmm. a colony of bees. Mm -hmm. um, in viruses, I've heard of quasi-species, mm -hmm. and in bacteria as well, I've also been told by people that there's really no such thing as like a, a given strain because there's so much variation and it happens so often. So do you liken viruses to, let's say, a, you know, again, essentially a colony of bees, you know, for, for successful infection, is it likely that I'm going to get a virus with one exact sequence, especially if it doesn't do a good job of repairing? I'm probably likely to be infected with hundreds, maybe thousands of different permutations, even though they're slight of a given virus. And do you think that these act in concert and have their own phenotype that, you know, infects me better or more effectively? Yeah, so I mentioned my mentor, Manfred Eigen, PhD mentor Manfred Eigen at the beginning. He came up with that concept of quasi-species, right? So I'm quite familiar with it and I'm, I'm a big fan of it, of, of course. And the idea is, as you said, when uh, and he was looking specifically at HIV virus, is uh, when HIV virus is replicating, it makes about one in 10,000 mistakes when it copies its own RNA. And the viral genome, as I said earlier, is about 10,000 nucleotides long. So it makes roughly one error per each copy it makes. That's a lot if you think about um, the variance that that produces if the mutant mutation can occur in principle at any of the 10,000 positions. And as it replicates in a cell and makes hundreds, maybe thousands of copies of itself, right, the likelihood that any two of those are exactly the same is actually relatively small, right? Some of them will be wild type, right? Maybe 50% will be wild type in the sense that they actually have exactly the same sequence of uh, the native sequence, the starting sequence, if you wish. But then the other 50% have at least one, sometimes two mutations in them. And they are in different places, in random places. That is a quasi-species because you have um, a species in the sense like an organismal species, right, that um, has variants, right? Just among humans, right? People have brown hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, right? Viruses have slight differences. They, by and large, have the same blueprint. They look very, very similar, but not exactly identical. And that makes them a quasi-species. And it is from this quasi-species that the cell sheds that Darwinian evolution occurs. And that's what keeps this quasi-species within certain bounds of diversity, because 50% of the virus sequences will still be the wild type and they do the same as they did before. But the other 50% might have this one or two mutations each in different places. Many of them would be detrimental. Many of them will lead the virus to be less efficient in replicating and it will die out. Probably 99% of those 50% that had a different sequence will die out. But every so often, Right? There will be a sequence that under certain conditions, perhaps in a certain person or so, carries a mutation that actually is beneficial and makes it replicate just a little bit faster or infect a little bit better, more efficiently. Right? And so that is the driving force, the evolutionary driving force that optimizes the virus to a particular host. And if us as humans were to evolve right, and maybe become, we have a stronger immune response, or maybe our receptors on the surface change a little bit, 
And in a thousand years, 2000 years, the general population has a slightly different selection of um, sequences on surface markers that the HIV virus are uh, used. The HIV virus will have no problem in making changes that keep it being able to infect that those progeny that we have uh, in let's say 50 generations or so that are again themselves evolved a little bit, but HIV will evolve too. So this is seen for example with sickle cell uh, anemia, famous example, right? The malaria virus induces, I mean, the malaria agent, not virus, sorry, is infecting red blood cells. But if you have sickle cell anemia, a certain deformation of the red blood cells, it's less likely to infect. And nobody in climates where there are no malaria uh, parasites or very few people have it, but people in Africa where the, where the parasite is pre pre prevalent have a certain chance even though it's not, they, they may have a harder time to get enough oxygen into their muscle tissues. They, it's an advantage for them to keep this sickle cell anemia gene around so that they are less likely to be infected with malaria, right? So basically the parasite, in this case, the human population co-evolve and in a certain circumstances, certain genes are being retained because they are more likely to give you an advantage in this particular environment. And Again, so it's a co-evolution between a parasite, a virus like HIV, let's say, and the human population. And this has been going on, this back and forth has been going on ever since the first uh, life, a cell became alive. Uh, and that's where the first viruses probably evolved. And they have been sharing the planet with them for uh, several billion years. And we have adapted to most of them. But every so often, a new virus comes around, jumps from... I mean, a bat or whatever it might have been to a human and, uh, and leads to a pandemic. And then uh, we adopt immunity and it dies, the virus largely dies out. But I mean, a little bit of it still is present and, and it can survive in the long term also and eventually evolves further and we evolve further. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about this, right? Evolution is woven into this and mutations drive evolution through this quasi-species and it's a mutual uh, adaptation of, of the different entities, the viruses, the bacteria and humans and, and other organisms to one another. Last question, if a uh, virus endogenizes into a host genetic material, are there any examples of it retaining, I guess in HIV this happens, it retains its, mm -hmm. its agency and that it continues or it needs to do that to co-opt the cell's machinery to make more virions, you know, while some of the viral material that's endogenized into us has lost its ability to act independently. Mm -hmm. Do you think that viruses are able to retain, again, their their independent agency once they've endogenized? Yeah, I think for a certain period of time, they will. But it's kind of like with a muscle. So if you don't use a muscle, your muscle will atrophy, right? It will just I mean, lose protein and will become very thin and so forth, right? It's the same with the ability of a virus to replicate. If it inserts into a genome, and then the cell itself divides every so often and replicates that former or this retroviral DNA with its own DNA, the virus itself obviously doesn't need its own replication machinery. The cell will do everything it can to silence the virus, right? It may hopefully put these epigenetic marks on it that the virus cannot replicate, it's silenced, it's really quiet, doesn't do anything. But the virus piggybacks on the replication machine of the cell itself and its genome gets replicated. However, 
because the virus never uses its own replication machinery. Over time, there's similarly a probability one in a billion or so uh, with three billion base pairs in each cell, there's about a one billion chance for a mutation to occur. That is in each duplication of a cell, in each replication of a human cell, there's also roughly one error made for the entire genome. And every so often, not often, but rarely, I mean, rarely, but, but occasionally, a mutation will happen to become inserted made when that part of the genome is replicated where the virus sits. And over time, again, this may be many generations until that happens, the information of the virus to replicate itself will be lost. And again, after hundreds of generations of humans, perhaps, that retrovirus becomes something that no longer can replicate and has a lot of similarity to a retroviral genome, but is not really able to replicate. However, on the lifetime of the person that got infected with HIV, over that lifetime, it's likely that at least some of these viruses will stick around in their original wild-type sequence and be able to eventually um, come back to life and um, have a certain probability to kill the person unless they get a, um, a drug. Well, very good. Nils, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work? Because there's a whole world of great information there. Where can they go? Well, we have a web page that you could, um, <laughs> uh, I can't show you right now, but I uh, can't share the screen. But we have a web page. If you just Google Niels Water Lab or even Water Lab Michigan or any of those combinations, you will find us on the internet. And there's a lot more information there about what we do. We work on RNA. We um, understand how it interacts with everything else in the cell and study specific pathways of RNA silencing, for example, that are involved in suppressing viruses in our cells. We are also highly interested in study how genetic elements, genetic sequences can jump from one cell to the other in this arc protein and other examples. And so, um, so yes, we are not virologists per se, but I mean, I have some background, I mean, from my PhD and other things in it. Uh, we, we have a molecular diagnostics company that I co-founded that is gearing up to eventually detect uh, COVID-19 infection. So we we are tangential to viral, we are not virologists, right? But we, we have some knowledge uh, in that space. Well, very good, Nils. Thanks for coming on the podcast and being a guest again. I'd like to have you back another time for uh, more of your specific info. So thank you. Sure, happy to be on it and come back. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.